0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor with you, as always, from Berlin, Germany. Adam Twos, the podcast's uh, namesake, uh, also F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us, as always, though this time from Miami. Hi, Adam. (laughs) Hi, Cam. Adam is not in his normal New York home, and that's appropriate enough because I realize that this is essentially the, the summer vacation edition of Ones and Twos. Uh, in the second half of the show, we will actually be directly addressing the concept of this summer break, I- interrogating it from uh, the perspective of time off from school and also time off from work, how those align and don't. But first, another vacation-related data point, that is 5.3. That is the percentage of flights taking off from the United States that have been canceled this year, according to current data from the Bureau of Transportation Statistics in Washington. Now, travelers in the U.S. have been subject to widespread flight disruptions over the last several days, leaving thousands of people stranded amid high air travel demand. Thousands of people were stranded at the airport over the weekend with over 8,000 flights delayed or canceled since Friday. Now more flights are... So that is higher than normal. It would be uh, just narrowly behind the pandemic year of 2020, in fact. The difference being, of course, that that a lot more of us are probably eager to fly now than we were during the height of the pandemic. So the demand to fly is there, but something's going wrong on the supply end, which seems to be something of a refrain in the economy right now. So anyway, most of us probably don't think about how airlines work as a whole. We, you know, we just book a flight, prepare for maybe a somewhat unpleasant experience and hopefully just grit our teeth to get through it but things obviously aren't working out like they're supposed to which is you know an opportunity for us to get into the details of how they're supposed to work and and why exactly they're not right now. So uh, Adam maybe we could start with what exactly is the business model these days for an airline company? I mean, we all have a sense of what the revenue is. There's the tickets that passengers like us are paying but what do the expenses these days consist of for a contemporary airline company? I mean, you know, what exactly do they have to pay for, and where do they cut corners to
1: better make a profit? I mean, it's you say the business model of airlines, in a sense, you may be assuming too much. I mean, the extraordinary thing about the industry, and I find it, you know, somebody who's economically minded, kind of quite puzzling, is just how unprofitable this industry is. I mean, it's people do it like there seems to be almost like a compulsion to. Offer air services to own airplanes that fly people around. But, like, it is not a good way to make money. Okay. And yet, the industry is continuously expanded, you know, and in and new airlines are launched and then they fail and then new ones are launched. But a vast majority of airlines globally are still heavily reliant on government support for one type or another. The big American providers the american allies the Uniteds, and so on most recently during the covid shock where they benefited from from huge from huge uh, support but but really to speak of a business model maybe to be somewhat flatter them it's just uh, with the exception of the ultra low cost operators and the network operators which do global long-haul mainly business orientated travel so the bucket you no know, price, low-cost tourism, EasyJet, Ryanair, they have, as it were, a model that clearly generates profit. And the Singapore airlines of this world, the Emirates and so on, which do high-level business travel globally, those two have been profitable, though they've enjoyed some government support. The, the standard operators in mean, every single one of the big names in the United States has been in bankruptcy at one or other point. And um, many of the great aims of the past, the TWAs and Pan Am, of course, have been extinguished. Why is it so difficult to earn money? Because the competition is quite fierce Hmm. in the age of deregulation. And you have a large number of fixed costs, right? You have to buy the airplanes, which are very expensive, and then you have to amortize those. You have to pay staff. This is a very labor-intensive industry uh, by comparison with many other sectors. It's not easy to gain efficiencies. And uh, you have to pay very considerable costs to the airports where you operate out of, and then you have to contend with the fluctuations in kerosene prices. And so it's a you know you're managing a whole variety of risks against a fiercely competitive market where the price of the tickets is held back one of the solutions to this to enable the industry to operate at all is in fact to make it less competitive. So de facto, the regulators in the United States have enabled a oligopoly to stabilize. And once they did that, those, you know, the remaining, the surviving operators, the American airlines, the Uniteds of this world have actually been able to stabilize at least until COVID, a profitable model. One of the ways they do that is to, as we all know from experience, is to uh, cut back on service uh, another thing they do is to pack more and more people into into their airplanes, and so seat width and and the so called pitch of the seats, the gap between seats, has been progressively shrunk down over time. And it's through mechanisms like that that they have been able to, you know, claw back um, some of the costs that they incur. But but the single standout thing about this industry um, is that really on a consistent basis, it doesn't make money.
0: Yeah. In any case, things do seem to be going, especially haywire, with airlines right now, as I mentioned at the top, in terms of cancellations, but also delays. In what way can all this be traced back to the pandemic and its after effects?
1: I think that's the the driver. I mean, the system before 2020 was actually operating at an, a historic high in terms of efficiency and profitability, and was then blown out of the water by 2020. I mean, the, the sector was, you know, savaged by the spring of... Of uh, 2020 in, in April, you know, 90% of, of air traffic in the on the Atlantic route was was shut down. It's difficult to exaggerate the impact of the of the COVID crisis. And companies like BA, which operates out of you know its hub in Heathrow, cut about 25% of its workforce, and they haven't been able to rehire um, because they didn't anticipate um, how how dramatic the rebound was going to be, and and frankly also because many of their staff especially those on the ground rather than in the more glamorous jobs in the air have found alternative employment. Like why would you work in a 24 hour day business um, face customer facing dealing with stressed out passengers, many of whom are very disgruntled with their service when you could be, you know, earning very similar money for much more um, humane hours in a supermarket. And um, the, the industry has found it quite difficult to rehire after the churn of its workforce um, um, during the crisis. And that's, I think, it's it's, to that extent, one of the standout examples of the effects uh, in sectors during the COVID crisis, which shed their workers, I mean, as the BA example indicates, you know, if you lose a quarter of your workforce, when you come back, you're going to be a very different kind of organisation, and we're seeing they're seeing the the effects of that. I mean, it's also worth saying that when you travel in an airplane, what you see is it where the front end provided to you by the airline. But really, it's a supply chain business. I mean, every element of the airline and the airplane that you're in is dependent on a series of suppliers. Those are all of the things which are loaded onto the airplane as you sit there waiting impatiently on the tarmac. And they have suffered all of the same supply Mm. chain issues that uh, the wider economy has. So what we're seeing is, is this combination of a loss of staff and the wider supply chain disruption.
0: Yeah, it sounds like some of the workers you're describing are employees of the airports themselves. So how much of this responsibility for, you know, these disruptions, this chaos, how much does that belong with the airports rather than the airlines that we all like to get so angry at? And beyond that, I guess, what is the business model of airports at
1: all? I mean, how do airports make money? So absolutely, a lot of the disruption is to do with the ground staff. I mean, I've been flying an insane amount since March. And again and again and again, the delay is the result of the inability to turn the aircraft around. And that's a matter of the ground staff, the cleaning personnel, provisioning with food and so on. Uh, and the services there are provided by contractors who work for the airport. So you'll have a big airport like JFK or Heathrow, which then contracts out the ground handling to a company like Swissport, for instance, and it cut a third of its workforce during the covid crisis so it cut its workforce of 65,000 by 20,000 people and it's now desperately trying to hire new staff to replace those lost but it's it's the, those those shortages are absolutely critical to the kind of disruption that we're seeing across the airline system there are there are a cluster of of big providers so um Swissport is one John Menzies is another which are responsible for actually delivering the service uh, in the airports and uh, without them, you know nothing moves The model the business model for airports is 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 itself very interesting and If you ask why the airline industry is not terribly profitable in part it 's to do with the fact that the airports are right? hmm. so the airlines find themselves uncomfortably squeezed between the people who produce the airplanes who sometimes are quite profitable, and the airplane manufacturers themselves rely on aero engine manufacturers who can be quite profitable and the oil industry can be quite profitable and to so can the airport industry. Essentially, the airport industry are, if you like, the landlords of the airline industry. Hmm. And so if the airline industry looks like it's making any money, the the airports can claw it back. And they do that by charging them landing fees, by charging them for air traffic control. Hmm. Uh, And that in most airports, however, is only about 40 to 50% of the airport's revenue. And then you have two other visions of the airport, which are, you could broadly say, the North American and the European model. And anyone who's flown globally will know and will have felt the difference, right? So American airports are half aeronautical services and half glamorized uh, parking lots. They're basically um, parking lots and um, car rental services, right? That's, as it were, what generates the vast majority of the non-aeronautical revenue in American airports. Um, which is why Uber and things like that was such a blow to the American airports, because if you don't have to drive your car and park it, for which they can charge you an exorbitant fee, or rather they charge the parking service providers an exorbitant fee, then the airport loses a revenue stream. In Europe, and and anyone who knows Heathrow, for instance, which is the airport which pioneered this, the vision of the airport is essentially as a shopping mall. So you don't drive there necessarily, you take public transport, but when you get there, you go for the shopping experience. Um, Two rather different models of how an airport can function so i guess finally here to go back to the
0: notoriously low profit margins of the airlines themselves i wonder what effect does that have on the future in other words does that mean that there is likely to be a deficit of innovation over the long term because there aren't any profits to reinvest is this a kind of like stagnant
1: dying industry as a result of these low profit margins well, I think um, the, the innovation in the airline industry comes from business models. It comes from logistics. It comes from information technology systems to manage their low-margin business better. Right, that's what we've seen, and you can think of the low-cost providers mm. as forms of innovation. Like you know, taking the old-world airline model and saying, "No, you don't need all that. Let's make it more like a bus." That's one of the you know the great challenges of the next decades is the, all this flying we're doing. We should be clear, it's not the main contributor to climate change. It doesn't compare with the levels of emission that you get from um, diesel and and, uh, ground transportation. It is more dangerous because CO2 emissions at high altitude are worse for the climate than those at ground level. Um, So it's a major problem that has to be tackled. And it's a hard-to-abate sector. It's not obvious that you know we with the prospect of long-haul aircraft being powered by batteries is pretty slim because the batteries are simply too heavy. They may be suitable for ground transport, but they're not going to be suitable for, for air travel most likely. So we need innovative solutions in that domain, and it's pretty hard to see that that's going to come from commercial profit alone. It's, hmm. it's likely that this is a sector in which there has to be government intervention and government subsidy. But after all, that is, you know, the case with, um, that is after all the case with uh, air transport anyway, because ultimately Boeing and Airbus are uh, part civilian, part military contractors. And so a large part of this industry is in any case sustained by various types of government subsidy, which... Run by way of defense budgets. It sounds like we may all need to get used to paying maybe more for tickets as well,
0: if it came to supporting that technology. If even just contributing marginally to that technology, I don't know.
1: Yep. Um, but you know, that's a tough. No, I sell. mean, Thomas Piketty has a very sensible proposal. I think to basically tax frequent flyers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you if you do, you in fact single out the class of of carbon criminals to which I belong. Like where it's a very effective way of picking out the people who really are contributing most to business class flying um, by frequent flyers.
0: Well, that is an idea. It does sound like if you're going to get into the business, you know, starting an airport is better than starting an airline these days uh, From from the way you presented it. But in any case, we need to leave it here for now, but we will be back to talk about summer vacations. Welcome back. So, our second data point here is actually, I have two data points that I want to flag. Uh, One is 8.5, that is the average number of weeks that American school children have off as their annual summer break. And the other number is two, that is the average number of weeks of personal time off that American workers have. Uh, So, you know, 10 days. So there's obviously a mismatch there. Uh, You know, if this were a psychology podcast, we could use that as fodder for discussing the innocence of childhood, maybe the discontents of growing older. But, of course, we're going to dig into the subject of summer break from an economic perspective instead. So, Adam, for most of us, our earliest memories of summer come in the form of summer break from school. What exactly is the origin of this extended summer break for school children? And is this a universal feature of schooling around the West or even the broader world?
1: So it is a universal feature of uh, schooling around the world, I think. But few countries in the world have breaks as long as America, the eight and a half weeks that you cited. I remember as a European kid looking with envy at my american friends and this apparently endless summer vacation that they would embark on six weeks is much more typical in europe as little as four weeks sometimes but this one that stretched over two or even some cases into three months um was really was something one can only envy and where it comes from is actually kind of an interesting story because it's, it's tempting to say it must have something to do with agriculture right and because once upon a time we were agrarian societies we adopted a school system that reflected that and that's actually kind of a a bit of a fairy tale it's not true if you think about agricultural society first of all most people in agricultural society don't go to school at all but to the extent that they do go to school in fact the two good times to go to school are in the summer and in the winter in the winter because there's least agricultural activity going on and in the summer because that's really the ripening season the harvest is not until the late summer and the early autumn precisely when people do go back to school. So that story just doesn't work out very well. And if you look historically in the US, agricultural regions of the US did in fact have short bursts of schooling in the high summer and in the winter. In city areas of the United States and in much of Europe as well, school was actually year-round. But what in fact becomes obvious is in the course of the 19th century, it's the cities which increasingly move away from this model and They move away from it for two reasons. A, because it's really expensive to run schools all the year round. And I guess you could also say that teachers wear out and kids wear out. And in large part, they were in fact running the schools all the year round because people didn't attend school in the way they do now, in the sense that one kid would enroll and then attend continuously. People came in and out of school in a much more fluid way than they do today. And so you ran school all the year round so as to be able to create capacity for people, new migrants to the United States to drop into school for a couple of months to learn some English and so on. So that was one factor was as it were the cost constraint, the logistics of offering a a school service all the year round. And the other one was heat. And in the urban areas, heat in the summer in much of the United States is every bit as oppressive as it is in the countryside. In fact, in some ways worse because you create heat sinks. And there was no air conditioning. And this was also, of course, a major factor in the countryside as well. And so by the late 19th century, the all-year-round school model and the summer winter model of the rural areas are repackaged as basically a short school year. I mean, the average American kid goes to school for only 180 days out of 365, which is compared to 245 in Japan. So many fewer days of the year with a really long summer break to accommodate, if you like, both the financial needs and the comfort needs. And that it's not just a matter of comfort. When people get hot, they can't think. It's, it's a well-demonstrated physiological fact about the human organism is that we function very poorly when we're hot, with some element, at least, of the agricultural labor market accommodating this long break. So it's very interesting that it's really a matter of political choice rather than, as it were, somehow socioeconomic necessity that demands the school year be a certain way. If you were willing to fund the system and if you were willing to provide air conditioning, there's no reason why in much of the world you couldn't run schools 365 days of the year and then allow people opt out or, you know, shuffle cohorts of teachers through the classroom. But instead, we've opted for this model of uh, vacation patterns. Fascinating. I mean,
0: yeah, what exactly are the effects on, on learning of such a long break from school? And, and I guess aside from the educational effects, does this kind of withdrawal of just basic child care during the summer what sort of effect does that have on deepening or reproducing economic or social inequalities in the United States? I guess as a broader question, could you ask, is summer break like the US has, is it it worth it on a basic sense?
1: Well, uh, this is the famous summer slide in educational attainment. And there, there were some studies which pointed to what you might think of as being the Predictable and obvious effects of this, right, that you'd expect kids from more disadvantaged backgrounds with fewer alternative options for education and schooling to be hit really hard. And there was some evidence which suggested that. But the really interesting thing is that as far as I'm able to uh, find anyway from having sort of, you know, searched for research on this, the evidence for differential effects is much less pronounced than you'd expect. What is clearly true is that over the course of the summer, all kids learning attrits to a degree, but what seems to be most pronounced is that the more intensively they absorb new information before the break, the more rapidly they lose it during the break. So there seems to be a kind of almost hydraulic effect where there's only so much that can go into a child's mind and be retained. So if you if you squeeze really hard... And then release the pressure, what tends to happen is it just, you know, you've squeezed too much in, it just flows out again. I'm much more persuaded by everyone, you know, if you've ever been a parent, you you know this sort of huge dilemma of what do you do if your child is no longer in school and you yourself have to go on working. And in Europe, that tension is much reduced by the fact that European adults in, in the workforce have much longer paid holidays than they do in the United States. And they indeed have legal entitlement to paid holiday, which doesn't exist in the United States. The number you quoted for the number of weeks that Americans take is, is correct, but it's not a legal entitlement. It's contractual, and that's the average that emerges across the labor market. Whereas in Europe, there is a legal entitlement, plus lots of holidays for Saints' Days and various other types of festivities. But if you're in a society in which there is no overlap, it creates an acute problem of childcare and indeed, you know, very serious socioeconomic stress and kids end up being uh, perforce, abandoned to various sorts of improvised childcare arrangements, which aren't necessarily a disaster, but certainly mean that parents go through huge stress as a result of this. So yes, a two to three month summer holiday creates a huge challenge for anyone in a parenting situation, particularly in in a country like the US with so little... um, legal holiday entitlement.
0: Hmm. So I guess to now to look at summer vacation more broadly, I mean, is the idea of the summer vacation in the modern economy uh, for workers, where does that come from? Is that a bottom-up idea? I mean, were workers given paid time off contractually, I guess, as you were saying, that they then generally chose to use in the summer? (laughs) Or did the idea of a kind of summer holiday start because employers chose to shut down their workplaces in the summer, maybe because of the heat during that time of year. And like, I don't know, how much of this does just really have to do with the schools being closed? Uh, as you know, Is that just a kind of alignment that workers take time off to be with their kids at that time?
1: Yeah, I think the only place where you can really see a powerful convergence of the complex politics of free time for workers With the school break, with the summer, the only case I'm really aware of is France, right? Where in 36, you get the election of this radical socialist government with backing from the communists who introduce the French summer holiday, one week of paid leave for all workers. It's the first moment when the French collectively go on holiday. It's the first moment, famously, when many working class French people saw the sea for the first time. You know, France, a country with a magnificent coastline. And these extraordinary, touching documentaries of, of working-class Parisians for the first time seeing the Atlantic and dipping their toes in the water, and so there, ev- all the elements come together. There is this summer vacation, you know, a logic for children, which we've already talked about, and then there are the politics of free time, of leisure, of paid vacation, which are really, absolutely, quintessentially the a domain for struggle between. Trade unions, uh, labor unions, which are demanding, first of all, uh, you know, a, an eight-hour, six-day week, so at least one day of of a weekend, and then ultimately a forty-hour week, um, five days of eight hours, and then also, of course, demanding vacation. There is technocratic push from above, reformers arguing uh, for vacation as necessary to sustain the productivity of the workforce, right? It being a kind of crude and simplistic and naive idea of exploitation that you just keep workers working all the time. And for white-collar workers, by the 1930s in the US, there is a considerable push from management to say, look, it's efficient actually to give people paid vacation because they, they come back refreshed, they come back working more effectively. So with France is the classic instance of, uh, you know, a socialist-led policy to construct a summer holiday for everyone, for families and kids, America is really the terrain of the failure of that to emerge. So, I mean, as early as 1910, um, the Taft administration actually proposed that there ought to be paid vacation for workers and it was killed in Congress. Efforts to legislate on on vacation time have repeatedly failed in the United States. In the 1990s, uh, in 2015, proposals were put for paid vacation to be made mandatory to maybe made an entitlement. And each time they were, they failed to secure majorities in, in Congress. And in the same way as we also have no American legislation on maternity rights, for instance, for paid maternity leave. So really rather disparate developments between apparently similar advanced societies.
0: There are certain countries these days where it does seem like the entire economy shuts down in August. And obviously, France comes to mind here most of all. Uh, how does the national economy deal with that level of just kind of economic fluctuation?
1: It's very well planned. I mean, unlike the pandemic lockdowns, this is predictable. Uh, it's a ritual. It gives you time to do essential maintenance and repair. And from an overall economic point of view, the crucial thing to remember is that it's more like an economic reallocation, right? Because it's not as though the economy stops. It's just that everyone leaves the cities and goes to the countryside and spends like mad on restaurants and hotels and leisure activities. And so as one bit of the economy, the manufacturing sector office work is, as it were, ramped down, the tourism sector, which in France, which is the largest tourism site in the world, ramps up on a spectacular scale. So you have a kind of balancing effect within the economy of spending and economic activity and labor from industry and factories in the cities of uh, the north to the Riviera, to the coastline, to the huge holiday complex. Interesting.
0: I mean, I guess finally, I wanted to ask if you have thoughts about how kind of our new era of working from home might affect summer vacation as we've been discussing it. Obviously, vacation is a sort of break from your normal work routine, but those routines are are very different now than they were before the pandemic. So are people, I don't know, likely to be more eager to travel than they were before if they're at home all the time? Or are people going to be choosing to live farther from the office and maybe more geographically distributed ways? And so maybe that subverts the idea of summer vacations if you're living as a digital nomad. (laughs) What
1: do you think, Adam? Yes, yeah, since I've somewhat slipped into the digital nomad category right now, I definitely regard like a few days at home in New York as a kind of respite. But the but the general point is a is a very real one, right? Which is that the model of holiday we've been talking about presupposes a very clear distinction between home life and working life, presupposes a very ordered, metronomic, ritualized kind of form of employment, which is then interrupted for this period of you know, leisure that you take somewhere outside the home in a specific location. And the more and more those boundaries are blurred, the more and more, you know, what is... I mean, the American summer holidays, European always strikes one as quite weird because the parents go on working, the kids are out of school forever, and then they go to summer camp, which is something the French have, but most other European kids never experience that because their summer holidays are much shorter and they'll spend a week or two at home and then everyone will go on holiday together for a week or 10 days or whatever. So there are already, between advanced economy societies, very different models for this. But we are also seeing, as you say, these all these blurry zones where people's homes become Airbnb properties, which are styled to look like the interiors of hotels, which they visited at some other point, and the whole thing just looks like an IKEA catalogue. So there's a there's a kind of blurring of the categories of the home The leisure space and the workspace, hotels themselves, as it were, constructed so as to be suitable for working in. And to get a certain level of Airbnb classification, the space actually has to feature an office style um, feature. You know, you've got to have a desk. All of this aside, though, it's really worth saying, especially for a podcast that's based in the US. You know, this is all very interesting, but the scandalous, the shocking, the you know, the grotesque fact is that in the United States, tens of millions of people are toughing it out, working one, two, three jobs right a week for who, for, for whom these are people for whom, like even a two day weekend, like let alone a week of paid vacation, let alone four weeks or six weeks of paid vacation in the manner of, of Europe, are just utopian. There are tens of millions of people in in the United States who essentially never experience a leisure in that sustained form, right, unless it's in the form of unemployment and dependence on benefit. And that, that is also a reality in modern America today. The working conditions and the working hours on average in the United States are those of emerging market economies. They're much more like Mexico than they are like France or Germany
0: yeah i i do agree that should be the takeaway here this is not normal what the the conditions in the united states and it could be different as uh, much of the rest of the west shows so in any case we do need to leave it here so i hope everyone who has a summer holiday enjoys it and does not get caught in one of these airline cancellations and uh yeah we'll be back next week okay that's it for another episode of ones and twos thanks as always to my co-host adam twos listeners as always we like hearing your feedback please email us at podcasts at foreign or tweet us at ones and twos pod remember that's twos as in adam's name t-o-o-z-e and of course uh remember to follow and review us uh on your favorite podcast app ones and twos is written and edited by me cameron abadi along with adam twos it's produced by laura rossbrow tellum and rob Sachs. our social media manager is claudia tady the executive editor of fp podcast is dan efron thank you very much for listening and we will see you back in your feed next week